I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? That's what the writer of Psalm 121 asked. He knew that he was in need, but where was he going to find the one to meet that need? He knew that he was in need, but who was he going to look to? Where would he turn? If someone walked up to you this afternoon and, and said that they needed help, can, can, can you point them to help? What would be the first thing that you would need to know from them? You'd need to know what kind of help do you need? Do you need a doctor? Do you need a police officer? Do you need a uh, financial advisor? Do you need a barista? I can't help you until you tell me what your need is. What you hope for, it has a dramatic impact on where you place your hope or where you look for hope, right? During this season, there are a lot of young people who are looking for toys. And so they're looking to Santa or they're looking to mom and dad or they're looking to grandpa and grandma. If you need food, you, you go to a restaurant, or you go to a grocery store, or you're, you go to your refrigerator. If you need a house, you go to a realtor. If you need medicine, you go to a doctor, or you go to a pharmacy. If you need information, you go to Google. For everything else, you go to Amazon. That is, unless you need it right this very second, in which case you run down to Target and you get what you need. We all have needs. And depending on what those needs are, we look in different places to meet those needs. And there are any number of places, people, or things that we look to, right? But, but what if the thing that you hoped for was not the thing that you needed most, and the one who was your only hope was the very thing that you neglected to hope in? What a tragedy it would be to look for hope your whole life, only to miss it when it was right in front of you. That's what we see happening in Matthew 16. Would you turn with me there? We're going to take a look. Matthew 16, verse 13 to 16. Matthew 16, verse 13. And it says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Caesarea Philippi, that's where they were heading into. It was a place of dazzling beauty and incredible darkness. It was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was near the headwaters of the Jordan River. This was a place that was full of life and, and beauty. One scholar described it, describing it as saying, everywhere there is a wild medley of cascades, mulberry trees, fig trees, dashing torrents, festoons of vines, bubbling fountains, reeds, and ruins, and, and, and the mingled music of birds and waters. This was a beautiful place. And as beautiful as it was, though, 
It was putrid with the stench of pagan worship. Because of its location, it kind of served as the northwest outpost of the promised land for centuries. And being on the edge of the promised land, it was very susceptible to outside influence. In the ancient world, it became a sacred place for Baal worship. And people worshiped the Baals hoping for rain, hoping for good crops, the flourishing of their livestock. Later on, the name changed. It became known as Paneus and served as a sanctuary for the cult of Pan. Pan was the half-human, half-goat fertility god of fields and forests and mountains and flocks and shepherds, often depicted in grotesque, extremely explicit images. By the time of Christ, this was a place that was kind of a hodgepodge. There was a kind of a syncretism uh, took over there, and there, were, there was a temple that was honoring Augustus Caesar, as well as this uh, pagan grotto dedicated to Pan and shrines and cultic images all around. Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples, they were on their way to Caesarea Philippi when he asked the question. They were literally, literally crossing ground between heathenism and Judaism. And this was about to become crossing ground between hope and hopelessness. That's when Jesus turns to them and asks, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Now, we got to notice how Jesus refers to himself here, right? He calls himself the Son of Man. This is one of his favorite ways to refer to himself. In fact, it's used around 80 times in the New Testament. And while it's a title that's connected with the Messiah, we see that in Daniel 7, 13, it's a title that also emphasizes Jesus' humanity. And when people heard Jesus call himself the Son of Man, they're not thinking power, They're not thinking divinity. They're not thinking political influence. No, they're the son of man, one pastor writes, would have brought into focus the humiliation and submission of his first coming and and his work of sacrificial substitutionary atonement. That's, That's really important. The second thing we want to notice here is the reason why Jesus is asking the question. And we need to acknowledge that Jesus isn't asking this question, who do the people say the Son of Man is, because he wanted information. It's not that he's, he's checking his poll numbers here and wanting to figure out, well, what's, what's going on? I, I, I want to know. We know that Jesus had divine knowledge. We see that in John chapter 1, verse 48, when he says, I, I saw you, Nathaniel. I saw you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel said, no, you didn't, you didn't see me here. Jesus had knowledge of him under the fig tree. In John 13, 11, he knew who would be the one who was going to betray him. John 16, 30, his disciples point out his supernatural knowledge. In John 21, 17, Peter declares, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Jesus' goal was not to get a beat on what was going on, not to, all, hey, you guys are the ones interacting with all the people. You tell me what's going on. No. He's trying to get his disciples to consider what other people think of him. 
and help them come to terms with their own beliefs. So what is it that people think of him? Verse 14, they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And right here, we, we notice right away, there's no consensus when it comes to who Jesus is. John the Baptist, Elijah, da-da-da-da, who, who knows? Some of the other prophets? Basically, the jury's out. No one seems to be able to agree, but there's one thing that they do agree on. Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. He's not who he claimed to be. Why is that? What is it about Jesus that led people to think this way? I think there's clues just in the answers that the people give here. Disciples say, some say he was John the Baptist. Herod may have been the first one to start this rumor. He had John, John the Baptist beheaded, if you remember. And then he hears of Jesus' fame. And what's Herod's reaction? Well, he fearfully asserts, Jesus must be John come back from the dead. I mean, why else would Jesus be able to perform the miraculous signs that Jesus is performing? He must, it must be John. John died, and John somehow went to the other side, gained some powers, and now is back and is doing these miraculous things. Jesus wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the one that the Jews had been all excited for and looking forward to because he, he's not posing any threat to Rome. He's not inciting riots. He's not declaring himself king of the Jews. He's got to be simply John, just risen back from the dead, and John is continuing his work of pre preparing the way for the coming Messiah. And this was probably a great relief in Herod's mind. We all know how paranoid his father was, Herod the Great. He heard that the king of Jews had been born, and what does he do? He orders the genocide of all the babies, the male babies in Bethlehem under the age of two. Can't be the Messiah, but there's something special about this guy. Let's not get carried away, though. John the Baptist, probably. What about Elijah? Maybe he's Elijah. Micah 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send Elijah, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. If Jesus was Elijah come back, well, that too would explain his ability to do all these miraculous things. But it would also mean that the great day of deliverance is coming. It, it, it's near. It wouldn't be long before the great and powerful anointed one would appear and make Israel great again. Ah, oh, what a great day that would be. Even today at Passover celebrations, an empty chair is reserved at the table for Elijah. People are still anticipating his appearance, signaling that the Messiah is on his way. Maybe he's John. Maybe he's Elijah. What about Jeremiah? In 2 Maccabees, one of the apocryphal books, not in our Bibles, the prophet Jeremiah removes the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense from the temple, and he goes and hides them in Mount Nebo, hoping that the Babylonians won't figure it out and they won't be destroyed. Some Jews thought that before the Messiah comes, Jeremiah is going to return, and he's going to go get the Ark of the Covenant. He's going to go get the altar of incense. He's going to bring them back into the temple, and this is the signal. The Messiah is coming. Again, they thought that Jesus was the forerunner. He's the one coming before the Messiah, but he can't be the Messiah himself. One pastor points out, they, 
they couldn't deny his supernatural power, but they would not accept him as Messiah and Savior. They came as close to God's ultimate truth as they could without fully recognizing and accepting it. Whatever Jesus was, people were bent on thinking this couldn't be the Messiah. Why is that? Why why can't they accept who Jesus says that he is? I think the answer is really quite simple. Jesus didn't quite seem to be offering what they were hoping for. The Jews had been looking for a conquering, reigning Messiah who would deliver God's people from their enemies, establish his forever kingdom. We find that in in 2 Samuel uh, 7. Prophet Nathan spoke for God, and in the middle of verse 11 says, And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, speaking to David, King David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you. Notice offspring is singular. Who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They were looking for this one, this descendant of David who's going to come and who's going to bring uh, just this, this incredible, powerful uh, a kingdom that you could not ignore, you had to pay attention to, you had to respect, you couldn't challenge. They were looking for the Messiah. In the Greek, Messiah, the, the equivalent is the word Christ. And both words just mean anointed one. In the Old Testament, Messiah is, is, is spoken of like 39 times. And it's spoken of kings, of priests, of prophets. And it's, it is associated with David and this coming king who would reign. I think they also looked at passages like Psalm 2, verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they say this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O king, kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I think they looked at passages like this. God responded to the nations by setting his anointed one on the holy throne in royal robes and that now is the time where he will rule and all who oppose him will crumble like pottery. And you can't, you can't blame them. 
Man, if you or I were among a people who had been oppressed by a foreign power for years and years and years, it's not hard to imagine how welcome and attractive the thought would be of a deliverer rising up, someone who's going to change things, someone who's going to bring us back to a place of prominence where we have the freedom to govern ourselves. They were looking for a a deliverer, and they saw Jesus, and they said, could this be him? And certainly Jesus fit the bill when it came to the astonishing, miraculous power he had. But you know, there was something about him that didn't jive. They were expecting bold. They were expecting powerful. They were expecting irresistible. Jesus came across humble and meek. And that didn't resonate. The Messiah they were expecting would never be the subject of such ridicule. He would never be the subject of persecution. What's the deal with his relationship with our religious leaders? I mean, wouldn't you think that our religious leaders would be the first ones to recognize if he was the Messiah? Wouldn't you think that they would be the first to say, this is our guy, we've been waiting for him, let's all jump in line and follow. Wouldn't you think that if he truly was the Messiah? People didn't recognize Jesus as the hope they were looking for because they didn't recognize the need that they had. They were looking for a different type of savior. They thought that their biggest need was political. Fix the government, you, you fix everything, right? They were thinking what they really needed was a, they weren't thinking that what they really needed was a restoration of their relationship with God. And that's clear from John 8, verse 31. Jesus tells the people, he says, if you abide in me and my word, you'll be my disciples and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And how do they respond? They say, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you talking about, Jesus? We're already free. We're not in bondage. And they say, we're children of Abraham. They thought that being part of the right bloodline was all that they needed, that they had a serious false sense of security. And really, it should come as no surprise to us that they didn't recognize Jesus for who he said he was. We look at John 1, verse 10. John says he was, he was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And this wasn't just recognized after the fact when John wrote, but the Scripture makes this very clear that Jesus was going to be a suffering servant long before he was born. In Isaiah 53, it says, He grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The people were hopeful. They were expectant. They couldn't wait for the Messiah to arrive. But the one they were hoping for was not the one that they most needed. And here, the one who was their only hope, standing before him, and they can't even recognize him. 
What a tragedy it would be to look for hope your whole life only to miss it when it was right in front of you because you were not even aware of what you really need. And it wasn't just the general populace. The disciples had a hard time as well. Initially, they were totally excited that Jesus had arrived. John the Baptist declares him to be the Son of God. Then, right after meeting Jesus for the very first time, Andrew runs to Simon and says, we found the Messiah. Not long after that, Nathanael declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The more time that they spent with him, the more they became convinced this was no ordinary man. No one else had that kind of power. No one else had that kind of wisdom or that kind of authority. And yet there were also moments where they were just completely baffled. Jesus spoke of going away and then returning, and Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Later on, when John the Baptist is in prison, he he sends some of his followers to find out, are, are, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? That was John the Baptist. It just didn't add up. If if Jesus was so powerful and was truly the Messiah, then why didn't he use his powers to put an end to this Roman rule? Why didn't he establish his earthly kingdom? We ask questions like that sometimes, don't we? God, why? If if you're this, if you're all loving, if you're all knowing, if you're all powerful, then why? The disciples were back and forth. Sometimes they demonstrated great faith, often after something miraculous had just been performed. Peter confidently declared in John 6, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So confident, so clear. And then at other times, Jesus points out their lack of faith. After calming the storm, why are you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and is sinking into the water. Jesus pulls him up and says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When the disciples forgot to pack a lunch, Jesus said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? That was Matthew 16, verse 8. But we come to verse 13. 13, 14, 15, 16. And we see a dramatic change, don't we? After two and a half years of walking with Jesus and yo-yoing back and forth between faith and fear, between trust and doubt, we arrive at Matthew 16, 13. Jesus finally lays it on the line and asks them, point blank, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. And this is it. This is the crossing ground. This is the border between life and death, between hope and hopelessness. 
After two and a half years, the disciples finally come to that point where they are convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that this was indeed the Christ. The religious leaders, they had rejected him and hated him. The people, they loved him one day, they despised him the next. Even the disciples themselves, they wavered back and forth. But here, on their way to Caesarea Philippi, Peter speaks loud and clear for all of them, you are the Christ. He was the Savior that they had all been waiting for. And notice Peter not only says you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, he says you are the son of the living God. That's a title that is really important, and it stands in stark contrast to the mythical, superstitious figures of the land they were moving into there. There, in a place of great darkness, stood a great light. There, in a place that was definitively Gentile, the anointed one. Israel's Savior, and the one who through, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, would be identified for who He really is. He was the Son of the living God. Sonship back then, it, was, it meant equality. Jesus is declared to be one in nature with God, not just any God, but the living God. This is not a God of stone, a carved figure out of the rock, nor was he a mere human who was dressed up, put a, put a robe on, put a gold crown on, raise him up on a high platform, declare him emperor. That's not who Jesus is. This is the son of the living God. Jesus is one in essence with the dynamic, all-powerful, all-knowing, eternally existing, one true God, the creator of the universe, the very essence of the real and living God. Not a mere man, not the invention of human hands. At the crossing ground, the moment of truth, this handful of men looked at Jesus and knew he was the one that they needed. What do you need? We have a lot of needs, don't we? We need money to pay the bills. We need jobs to make the money. We need education. We need skills to get the jobs. We need basic things like pleasure and love and companionship. We need things like food and clothing and shelter, health care. We need to get in shape, some of us. We need to work out. We need to eat better. We need rights. We need justice. We need peace. We need freedom. We need hope. We could go on and on and on. We all have needs. We all have wants. We all have things we hope for. But what if the things that we're hoping for was not the thing that we needed most, and the one who was our only hope was the very thing that we neglected to hope in? In the midst of countless needs on our list, the Bible makes it clear that there is no one that we need greater than Jesus Christ, and that we have no greater need than the need that He meets. In fact, if you meet every single one of your other needs in life on your wish list, and you don't meet this greatest need, all the others are pointless. What is that need? As we see the story of humanity unfold in the pages of Scripture, we see an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving Creator crafting humanity out of the dust of the ground and as make forming them as a living testimony to his glory. He makes them good and he places them in a 
good place, that they might enjoy it, enjoy each other, and most of all, enjoy Him. Very quickly, we see humanity doubt its Creator and say, I'm not so sure if He has our good in mind. We see them turn from Him, decide to go their own way. Proverbs 14, 12 tells us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And from there, we see a world that's spinning out of control, out of balance, out of step with the way it was designed to run. More than that, we see people who were designed to know and enjoy an intimate and harmonious relationship with their Creator now become His enemies and on a trajectory towards destruction. And this includes every one of us. There are no exceptions. No one gets a pass. Proverbs 3.10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. As good as you think you might be, and as you look at other people and compare yourself, and the, 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 the gap is so different between how terrible this person is and how relatively good you are, there's no way. But the Bible says, no, it's all bad. You can't do anything to fix your situation. You have rebelled against your Creator, and those who rebel are, have forfeit their good standing with Him, and they invite on themselves, they invite on themselves for Him to abandon and curse them. And this is a disaster that can't be avoided by just saying sorry. We're taught that so often at a very young age, aren't we? If you just say sorry, everything is fine, everything is forgiven. The situation that we have here can't be reconciled by just saying, sorry God, I disobeyed you. Nor can it be solved by, by saying, I'll make up for it. I'll, 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 I'll do some good things. I'll say these things several times over and over again. Or, or I'll, I'll make sure I deny myself some, some pleasure so that I'm experiencing pain. It, won't that make up for it? And the Bible says there's nothing that's going to make up for this. Even the good things you do are just like dirty rags to God nowhere near good enough. Think about it. If the proper and only punishment for our rebellion, for our sin, is death, then it has to be paid for by death. You and I have a problem that we can't talk our way out of, we can't work our way out of, and we can't buy our way out of. Our situation, according to this, is hopeless absolutely hopeless, our greatest need. It's hopeless unless the one who created us sends hope. Unless a, a perfect, innocent one is sent to take our place, to be our substitute and suffer the punishment that we deserve. He would have to be someone who cared for us so deeply that, that he would do anything to save us. Kind of like a shepherd would, would throw himself into the path of a wild bear or a wild, hungry lion to save his sheep. That's the kind of person he would have to be. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For all the needs that you and I have, there is none greater than our need for someone to come and take the punishment that we deserve that we might cross over. 
from being far from God to being near to Him. From being enemies of God to being friends of God. From being foreigners to being family. Where are you looking for hope? Until you find it in Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the Savior of the world, you will find yourself forever searching, looking for answers, and looking to solutions that promise high and deliver so low. Hopes that ultimately will prove to be hopeless. Humanity's hope, it will never be found in in politics, in medicine, in science, in technology, because humanity's problem, its greatest need, is the chasm between itself and its creator. Jesus is humanity's greatest hope because Jesus came to meet humanity's greatest need. Thank God that when we were hopeless, hope came. I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. My help is in Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.